A little hidden history, a little pedagogy, a lot of ways we can improve our teaching and mindset so that our history and social studies classrooms tell a more complete, diverse human story. I'm Cheryl Ann Amendola, and this is the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Hi, my name is Cheryl Ann Amendola, and welcome to the Teaching History Her Way podcast. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about the Native women activists of the Alcatraz occupation, the Alcatraz occupation itself, and also ways in which we can teach indigenous people's history without making some common mistakes that history teachers make, that people make when they are discussing Native Americans and indigenous people. So first of all, let's talk about those pitfalls to avoid when we're teaching indigenous history. First of all, we have to make sure that we're teaching about indigenous peoples, not only in the past, but also in the present. A lot of times we can fall into this trap of using the past tense when we're talking about a tribe or a group of tribes. The Haudenosaunee were, or the Lenape were. Well, the Haudenosaunee are, and the Lenape are. There are indigenous communities around the United States and all over Canada, South America, Central America that are alive and well. They are politically active. They are activists. They are part of our communities. So talking about indigenous peoples in the past tense all the time really only does a disservice to their community because it makes them seem like they are this historic group of the past as if they are extinct, which they are not. And part of the problem of the way indigenous peoples are treated today by civilians, by the government, is this idea is because of this idea of erasure, the idea of erasing them from the present and also erasing them from the past, which leads me to my next pitfall. Erasing indigenous people's history means that either you don't teach it at all or you teach it only once. So for example, you might begin your year in US 1 by teaching about indigenous people being on the land as colonial settlers from Europe get to North America. Okay, that's great, but that's not the only time they're here. In addition, we also have to make sure that we're teaching them as very important, very influential political players in the colonial landscape. So the British, for example, not only depended upon them to help them learn how to grow food in the case of hearing about Squanto, who we most often hear about at Thanksgiving when you're either hearing or telling a very true story of the Thanksgiving meal or a less mythical version. But we also need to acknowledge the fact that indigenous peoples Different tribes had trade connections all over North America, Central America, and South America. They had strong economies that worked. They had gender norms that were different than Europeans and societies that were different than Europeans but worked for them. They had political institutions that were different than European political institutions, but they worked for thousands of years. They also had political ties and they had allyships and they had people that they didn't get along with. So we really need to acknowledge indigenous peoples and acknowledge different tribes for being powerful societies, powerful governments, and having powerful economies prior to European colonization. And the way that we study indigenous peoples in the United States in particular, has a lot to do with historicization. Who is writing the story of indigenous people? And often if you look in your history textbook, you'll see that 
Indigenous people are either not represented or underrepresented in the author or editorship. And you'll also see that Native peoples are not included throughout all of the chapters. And you're not getting a lens through which to see them that is a non-European lens. So we do take a look at the way Europeans tried to convert them to Christianity. We do look at the way Europeans tried to crush their political and economic systems. But we don't actually see how powerful and, in fact, how organized indigenous peoples were and still are. So we need to make sure that we don't fall into the trap of always looking through the European lens because that's the way we have always studied history maybe or maybe that's the type of books that we have always read. So try to get that other perspective whenever and wherever you can. All of this that I talked about, using only the past tense, teaching only history pre-European colonization, um, teaching through only the European lens leads to stereotypes that we definitely don't want to perpetuate in our classes. So by rearranging the way that we teach, by changing the way that we teach about indigenous peoples, we'll not only have a better view and a better way of expressing indigenous history, but we'll also be able to help our students really understand that many of the stereotypes that they may be used to seeing or used to hearing either from a sports mascot or in a cartoon or even in popular sculpture and art just simply aren't true. So it's really important for us to to consider all of those perspectives. A book that I really like and that I've read over and over and over is An Indigenous People's History of the United States by Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. I highly recommend the book. There's also a youth version, a YA version of the book that you can give to your students or you can read that for yourself if it will help you make your classes more accessible for your students when you're teaching about Indigenous peoples. But what's really wonderful about it is it comes from the indigenous perspective. So I learned a lot from this book that I had never even thought about because I had never read a perspective of anyone other than someone who put something in my history book or a white author. We also need to take into account some language considerations. Many people have asked me, and I am not indigenous, so I've looked it up in other places, including the National Museum of the American Indian. And there are several different ways that you can refer to indigenous peoples. You can use the terms indigenous people, as I have been saying. You could say native people, but we never say native on its own. So we never say natives. That's not, that's offensive. We don't say that. You can say American Indian, though it's less common and not something that is necessarily preferred. But using a tribe name is best whenever possible. So I often tell my students just as we would differentiate between someone who is German, someone who is French, and someone who is Italian when we're talking about Europe rather than just saying Europeans, we always try to differentiate with tribe when we can because even though Native American people may have some commonalities because of geography, they are not all the same. All right, now let's get into some modern history here and talk a little bit about the occupation of Alcatraz. Now, I was lucky enough to be a master teacher for the Gilder Lerman Institute for American History, and they asked me to teach a women's history course from September 2020 until the end of November 2020. And one of the courses that I taught, or excuse me, one of the classes that I taught was about Native women activists of the Alcatraz occupation. 
I had heard about the Alcatraz occupation before, but I had never thought about looking at it through the lens of women. So here was a new learning experience for me because not only was I teaching modern indigenous history, but I was also teaching it through the lens of women. So this is a double cool thing for me to be telling you about. I'm really excited about it. So first of all, what is Alcatraz? Alcatraz, you might know it as the prison out off of the coast of San Francisco. Maybe you have visited it or seen it. And it was a prison, as most of us know. However, to Native peoples, it became a place of isolation or ostracization because um, it was for tribal members who had violated a tribal law. So Native peoples would send their own criminals out there. It was also a camping spot and an area for gathering food, and it was a hiding place for many indigenous people trying to escape the California mission system, trying to escape being converted. So Alcatraz Island holds its own significance to the indigenous peoples of California and of the West Coast. But once Alcatraz Island became a prison, both military prisoners and civilians were incarcerated on the island. But many of the people who were incarcerated on Alcatraz Island were Native Americans. So in January of 1895, the largest single group of Native American prisoners on Alcatraz was there. And the U.S. government arrested, tried, and sent 19 Moki Hopi people to Alcatraz Island. And Native Americans were confined as prisoners in the barracks at Alcatraz through the remainder of the 1800s and into the 1900s. So Alcatraz turns from a place that Native peoples used for their own isolation of rule breakers as their camping spot, as a place for gathering food, as a place for hiding from trying to be assimilated into a Christian religion. It turns into something that now the U.S. government was using against them. So the Alcatraz occupation happened in... 1969, where a group called the All Tribes Group claimed or reclaimed, if you look at it, Alcatraz Island, and it became a two-year protest. And this was catalyzed by the U.S. government mistreating Native peoples, but also by the Indian Center in San Francisco burning down. So Native peoples in San, in the San Francisco area really depended on this Indian center because it provided education, it provided community services, and they needed to find a new place to build. And rather than wait, a group of people decided to go and reclaim Alcatraz Island. And they did this on the basis of a treaty that was signed in 1868 called the Treaty of Fort Laramie. And basically, the Treaty of Fort Laramie that was signed in 1868 between the United States and the Sioux returned to Native peoples all retired, abandoned, and out-of-use federal lands. Well, the Alcatraz prison had closed a few years prior to the occupation. So, under the Treaty of Fort Laramie, Alcatraz Island should have been returned to the Native peoples uh, of California. So, on November 20th, 1969, 89 Native peoples of the Indians of All Tribes group, plus 30 women and students and married couples and children, occupied Alcatraz Island. And there were 400 people who occupied the island at one point. That's a lot of people and a serious occupation. And the protesters 
wanted fairness in the way the American government treated Native peoples all across the United States. So Native women were actually responsible for transforming Alcatraz. They organized the All Tribes Elementary School. They organized a nursery school, a health clinic, a newsletter, and they led council meetings. So the women of the occupation were really involved in the occupation and in trying to fight for self-determination and protesting the government's mistreatment of Native people. And it's really interesting that they would have chosen, and also ironic that they would have chosen, and they did this on purpose, a United States penitentiary, as well as one that was broken down and, and ragged. So let's meet some of the women who were responsible for keeping up the occupation of Alcatraz. One woman is named Linda Arenado. She's Creek. She was the founder and leader of the All Tribes Elementary School, and her focus was an anti-colonial curriculum. So how can we teach Native people's traditions, Native people's history through Native people's eyes, Native people's stories and religion? How do we talk about Native people's through the lens of Native peoples in this curriculum, which I think is really amazing. Another woman was named Stella Leach. She was Lakota, and she was the licensed nurse in charge of the health clinic at Alcatraz. The clinic actually started on the second day of the occupation. So they were planning on being there for a really long time, and they realized that health was an important aspect of keeping the occupation going, particularly for 400 people. In addition, there was an Indians of All Tribes newsletter. The newsletter was written by, in part by, Grace Thorpe and Marilyn Miracle. Marilyn is Mohawk. Denise Quidiquit, who's Pomo Modoc, she's the editor. And another editor and writer was Cloud North. And the art and design team was led by Valerie Lopez. And I've given you the tribal names or the tribal affiliations of each of these women whenever they were available. And the work that these women did in conjunction with the other occupiers was to make their action clear to the entire world. So the newsletter was meant to inform, but the protest was meant to inform the whole world that the main reason for their occupation was that the treatment of Native Americans by the federal government was wrong. They were upset and remain upset about the breaking of Indian treaties. And the Indians of all tribes organization also wanted to use the island to build a Native American study center, an American Indian museum, a spiritual center, and an ecology center. So the protesters had great vision for the island had they been allowed to keep the island under the Treaty of Fort Laramie. But unfortunately, the protest ended after about 18 months or so. On June 11, 1971, government officers removed the last people from Alcatraz Island. They, the government cut off all electrical power and telephone service. There was a fire that destroyed many buildings. The legacy of this occupation, however, lives on. After the Alcatraz occupation or reoccupation ended, some of the occupiers moved to the Nike missile installation to occupy that. 
And the Alcatraz occupation also influenced the government's decision to end its Indian termination policy. It also passed the Indian Self-Determination and Education Assistance Act of 1975. Furthermore, this way of protesting has been used in the not-so-distant past. If you remember the protests in Standing Rock against the Dakota Access Pipeline, Native people's struggles for rights and sovereignty still continue right up until this very day. And the reoccupation of Alcatraz was one example that continues to be used about how to protest unfairness. So with this episode of the Teaching History Her Way podcast, I hope you have learned something. I hope you learned about a topic you may not have known about before in the native occupation of Alcatraz. I hope that you learned about some very strong women who made that occupation possible because of their foresight and thinking. And I hope you learned a little bit or more than a little bit about how to present indigenous people's history in your classroom in a sensitive way, but also in a way that empowers indigenous people all over the world. Thank you so much for joining me today on the Teaching History Her Way podcast. I hope to talk with you next time on our next podcast. And if you would like to visit me in the meantime, please visit me at www.historyherway.org or follow me on Twitter at History Her Way. See you next time.